Amen. Again, we're going to look at the passage that we read earlier, Mark chapter 6, 45 through 52. If you want to turn there, please do. I want to tell you about a man. His name is Horatio G. Spafford. Not a name that you hear often. Uh, people don't name their children Horatio much anymore. But there was a TV show here recently with a fellow named Horatio on it. Maybe it's making a comeback. But in the 1800s, Horatio G. Spafford was a Presbyterian from Chicago living in the mid-1800s. He was a very successful lawyer. He was a deeply committed Christian. But his life was marked, at least for a stretch of time, by one tragedy after another. Around 1870, uh, he lost a son. Uh, shortly thereafter, he invested heavily on, <clears throat> in property and real estate on the shores of Lake Michigan. And if you know your Chicago history, which I didn't know, uh, you'll know that there was a great fire in Chicago in 1871 that destroyed much of his holdings, wiped out by this disaster. He wanted to take a rest after enduring uh, some of these difficulties. Uh, he sent his wife and four daughters across the ocean to an evangelistic campaign in Great Britain with the great evangelist D.L. Moody. He wanted to go along as well. Uh, he had to delay to take care of some business. And so his wife and daughters... Sailing ahead of him, encountered another ship, and on November 22nd, the ships collided, and the, the ship sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors landed in Cardiff in Wales, and Spafford's wife cabled her husband, saying that she was saved alone. Their daughters were lost. And shortly afterward, Spafford left by ship, to join his bereaved wife. We're going to look at Mark today. We'll come back to Horatio G. Spafford in a moment. But this account by Mark uh, is a really astounding account. We, have, Of course, we have encountered some great miracles by Jesus already as we've studied the book of Mark. But Mark is really exhibiting uh, his expertise as a storyteller. And I don't mean that he's telling us a story that's not true. Uh, he's really a master storyteller in the way that he is relating this history to us. This really happened, and he's telling the, the account in such a way as to communicate even more than just the bare facts communicate to us. So as we go back and we think about why did Mark write this book in the, in the very beginning... Uh, if we look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says it's the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's stressing in this book, which we've already seen, that Jesus is indeed divine. He is God. Of course, he is both human and divine. He's got those two natures in one person. We know he's human. History tells us so. He's also divine. And Mark is underlining that point for his readers. There was a great debate in those days in the first century about the nature of who Christ was. Gnostic teaching denied his divinity. And Mark wants to reiterate that to his readers and prove it. 
Now, as we think about Jesus' divinity, the question I want us to ask ourselves today is this. Do we grasp the implications of who Jesus is on a moment-by-moment basis? I know the answer to that because none of us do fully and truly. And hopefully uh, we can, through our study today, will become better skilled at that by understanding and grasping the implications of who Jesus is on a moment-by-moment basis, especially when things are difficult. Now, I guess that most everybody here today would fully agree that Jesus is both human and divine. We've actually already stated it out loud when we profess the Apostles' Creed together. But when the going gets tough for us, when things aren't going our way, do we really understand who Jesus is, you know, all the things that we say we profess about Jesus, does that matter to us when things become stressful and difficult? In the way that Mark records this event, he's telling us that Jesus is God, and we see that in three different ways. We see that in the walk of Christ. We see that in the words of Christ. We also see it in the work of Christ. Now, the way that Mark tells this account is really very interesting. We see that Jesus walks on water. That's the bare facts. Yes, that's something that not very many people can do. Uh, In fact, the group of people who can walk on water is limited to one, and that is Jesus Christ himself. He's the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth that can actually walk on water. It's a miracle only God can perform. If you go back to the Old Testament, it is God who is sovereign over the seas. We've already seen that in our call to worship today. He created the sea, he controls the sea, and he even walks on the sea. Job 9.8 says about God, he, he alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. So Jesus is demonstrating that he is God by walking on the water. Only God can do this. Also, if you look at Mark's choice of words in verse 48, I find that interesting. Uh, when, you, when you read verse 48, or back up to verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was along the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, okay, that's, that's like 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning. So they had been rowing to Bethsaida since evening, before evening. It was daylight when they set out. Here it is, 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning, they're still rowing. And that word there, that they were making headway painfully, that's the word for torture. Now, many of you have spent time on the water. Maybe you've gone rowing, and, and the, if the wind is blowing, it becomes very difficult. If the waves are great, it's even more difficult. These were experienced fishermen, and they weren't getting across that lake. It was, it was torture trying to row, and they were not making much headway at all. And this is the crazy thing. It says, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. I mean, isn't that funny? Here's Jesus. These guys have been rowing all night long, and he's out for a stroll in the water, and it says he's just going to swing on past them. Hey, fellas, I'll see you on the other side. That's the kind of the image I get, that what, what Jesus is doing here. Mark is using a, a choice of words here to prove a point. Because it's not that Jesus is passing by on his stroll across the lake uh, waving to his friends who are struggling so. 
That word pass by is a careful choice of words. His readers would have been familiar with the Old Testament. And and when Mark says that Jesus was about to pass by them, it would have conjured up a couple of images from the Old Testament. The first one is Moses. Mark is referring to the passing by of God in the Old Testament. Moses wanted to see God's glory. And in Exodus 33, Moses asked God specifically, please show me your glory, God. And it says, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. You see that word pass keeps appearing in this passage. God reveals his glory. He's passing by. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. When Mark says Jesus was about to pass by them, it doesn't mean that he's just out for a stroll and is, and is beating them across the lake. It means that he is exhibiting his glory to the disciples. In this difficult moment, when they're straining at the oars, when they're not getting across the lake, Jesus is revealing his glory to them, that he is God. He alone treads on the waves of the sea. Another account is 1 Kings 19. God passes by Elijah. You know, Elijah was discouraged. He said, I'm the only prophet of God left. Everybody's gone and they're worshiping Baal and and all other gods. And he's really upset and he's hiding in a cave. And God comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he explains it to him. You know, I've been faithful, but the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And I'm the only one left. And God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And it says, behold, the Lord passed by. And you have the the great earthquake and the wind and the fire and the still small voice. And God speaks to Elijah there. Again, God's glory. God is showing Elijah his glory and encouraging his heart in a very discouraging time. That is what Mark is referring to. That is why Mark chooses these very words because he's saying, look, Jesus is revealing his glory, his divinity to these disciples. And they need to understand who exactly Jesus is. So that's the walk of Christ that reveals something about Jesus' divinity. His words also reveal to us something of Jesus' divinity. In verse 50, it says, They all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Those words, of course, are carefully chosen again. Jesus says, It is I. In the, in the original language, he doesn't say, it is I. It says, I am. I am. Hopefully that rings some bells for you. Yes, he's, he's identifying himself as Jesus. He's saying, it's me. But by the choice of words, he's, he's saying something so much more about himself. Of course, in Exodus 3, when God appears to Moses... In the burning bush. And God tells Moses, you know, go 
and get my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, well, who do I say sent me? What's your name, God? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In Hebrew, the word is Yahweh. That is God's proper name. And when Jesus says, I am, to these disciples, he's revealing himself as Yahweh. He is the one true God walking on the water right beside them. Jesus also says something else. He says, take courage, do not be afraid. In the Old Testament, when God reveals himself to someone, he always has to say that. He always has to say, take courage, don't be afraid. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Genesis 15:1. God is about to make a covenant with Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Then God goes on to make a covenant with Abraham. And it's interesting to note that in that very chapter, when God makes a covenant, it says that uh, Abraham had to divide up animals and, uh, and put them side by side. And in his sleep, in this vision, dream he had, God passes through those pieces, reveals his covenant, reveals his glory to Abram there. Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 43, a very well-known passage. Jesus, uh, uh, God says to the people of Israel, O Jacob, he, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So when Jesus says, fear not, he's being consistent with what God said to the people he revealed himself to in the Old Testament. Fear not, I am Yahweh. They were straining at the oars. It was very difficult. They were having a lot of trouble. It's a picture of our lives, isn't it? Straining at the oars, sometimes going through very difficult times, feeling like we're being tortured. And in those times, that's when God can reveal himself to us in all of his glory and power. Now, finally, we see the work of Christ. In verse 51, it says, When he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Of course, walking on water is something that only God can do. So stilling the wind and the waves is a miracle only God can do. And the Old Testament, again, tells us that that's so. We saw it a few weeks ago when we uh, encountered Jesus in the boat, stilling the storm winds and the waves with just a word, peace, be still. Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And that, O Lord God of hosts, is Yahweh. That is the word that is used there. Psalm 93, the floods have lifted up, O Lord, O Yahweh. The floods have lifted up their voice. The, the floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. So by stilling the wind and the waves, Jesus shows that he is divine. The salvation comes only from God. God is sovereign, and he is the one who holds our lives in his hand. We know this, don't we? We know that Jesus is great. We've already seen his power on display and that he can do anything. 
But have you ever gone through a difficult time and you wonder, where in the world is God? Has He forgotten me? You know, does He even know I'm struggling? Have we completely forgotten who God is? And do we understand that He cares about that very situation in which we're in? Or do we doubt that? And you see that in the, the response of the disciples. When they see Jesus, you know, they're straining at the oars. They've been doing it all night. They think Jesus is a ghost and they, they are, it says that they are terrified. You know, when we go through difficult things and we think, oh, you know, we're doomed. You know, we get stressed out and we're terrified. You know, it may not be a life-death situation. It could be financial trouble. It could be relationship problems. We all know that terror, that stress, the difficulty that life brings. And when we get in those situations, we often forget about Jesus altogether. And we hit the panic button and we don't know what to do. These, these disciples were struggling. It was quite a trial. We do the same. We go through similar situations in our lives. We meet trials in the physical sense, but we struggle mentally, emotionally, and spiritually or all of the above at the same time. Now, when our problems or difficulties, trials, temptations, or persecution arise, our temptation is to succumb to stress and fear, whether it's the election that doesn't go our way, or our finances are falling short, or relationships are going bad, or our employment is not secure. You know, do we remember who Jesus is and that he, he cares for us? When you couple this passage along with one previous, Jesus uh, feeding the 5,000 with the loaves and fishes, Jesus does that in response to seeing these people who were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he cares for them and he provides for their needs. And so Mark is putting these two accounts side by side to, to show us two things about Christ and to remember about Christ. Number one, that he cares for us. He's a great shepherd. And he knows our needs. And he cares about them deeply. Even, even when he wanted to be on vacation, because that's what he had gone to the wilderness to do when he fed the 5,000, to, to get away from the crowds. They didn't have time to eat. And so uh, he sees the people and he loves them. And he provides for them and he teaches them. And then you have this account of Jesus walking on the water, showing his power. Yes, Jesus loves and cares for us, but also that he's got the power to do exactly what he needs to do to shepherd us, to take care of us, to feed his flock, literally, physically, and spiritually. Now there's an interesting phrase in the last part of verse 51 and 52, verse 52, it says that they had no understanding about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. These were the disciples. Uh, it's telling us that the terror of the disciples was a failure to apply to their lives what they should have known by now. Dick Lucas says, although they know Jesus can do the impossible, they continually fail to apply this knowledge to their present situation. We are being pointed to the difference that understanding who Jesus is should make. And that's really what I want to get at today. You know, do we, when we come to those difficult times, understand who Jesus, Jesus is? And do we know the difference that that understanding should make in our lives? 
The disciples continuously have this problem. Uh, They can see that Jesus does the impossible, miraculous things. They're constantly shown that he loves them and cares for them. But they still haven't realized in the fullest sense who he is. And that's why Mark says that they didn't understand about the loaves. And thus they continually fail to apply that understanding to their present situation. How do we do that? Let's think about who is Jesus. Jesus is Lord over all storms. There's no storm so great that he can't still it if he wants to. The storm or flood was an ancient sign uh, of chaos. Psalm 29 tells us that God is enthroned over the flood. Jesus has power over any chaos, power, any terror, any difficulty in our lives. Now, Jesus knew exactly what the disciples were going to go through, but he doesn't do anything about it. He reveals himself in it, and that's a lesson for us as well. The reason the Lord may send storms into our lives and difficulties is to show his character to us and ultimately to comfort us as we encounter him in the storms and difficulties of life. You know, we should cast all of our anxiety upon Christ because he cares for us, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. He's our good shepherd. He cares. It's his job to endlessly heal the broken, find the lost, and support the weak. And since he is also God, he cannot fail to be successful in these endeavors. He loves you more than you love yourself. He knows your needs better than you do yourself. So cast all your anxiety upon him. He knows exactly what you need, and he's powerful enough to deliver. But what do we run to when the going gets tough? We cannot seek to have Jesus meet our needs as shepherd if we won't acknowledge him as king. Now back to Horatio G. Spafford. He was a man who did have understanding about the loaves. In those difficult times, he recalled who Jesus was and what he had done. He's traveling across the Atlantic to meet up with his wife, his bereaved wife. Captain comes and points out to him the place where the shipwreck had occurred and it's speculated that on or near that area that Spafford penned this text. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. In that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio G. Spafford is doing exactly what I'm talking about. He's he's asking the Lord, you know, when trials come, when difficulties arise, let, let me be controlled by this thought that Jesus loved me so much that he would give his very life for me. My life is in his hands. He is caring for me, even though I'm going through this difficulty. And he encounters Christ in the storm. He encounters him there, and he knows him in a deeper way because of the difficulty that he went through, that Christ carried him through. May that be our prayer today, that 
we would be controlled by that assurance that Christ is our shepherd and he's a great king. And he has got our best interest at heart and he's powerful enough to, to do everything in us that he wishes. Let's pray together.